I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Dwayne and Charlene Blake are your quintessential married couple. They've raised two kids together. They have a baby granddaughter. They just celebrated their 32nd wedding anniversary. And they're still super into each other. Yeah, it's really sweet. You can actually still see the love in their eyes. It almost feels like something out of a sitcom. This is Boston Globe criminal justice reporter Ivy Scott. She recently spent some time with Dwayne and Charlene at their home in Worcester, Massachusetts. <laughs> How are you? Hi, Ivy. So good to see you. Yeah, it's really beautiful. When you first walk into their apartment, the thing that you notice is how cozy the house looks. It's as if somebody has really settled down and made a life here. The walls are covered in family photos spanning decades. There's the dating years, the wedding, children, even grandchildren. That's about the time we met there. That was before we was married. Yeah, because I, I, I had a high top fade. I had the kid in play, if you know what I'm talking about. I had the high top fade. Okay, I want to know more already. I know, they're the best. Like the type to still have date night all these years later, even if it doesn't always mean roses or a candlelit dinner. I always tease him about my biggest date is him wanting to go to with Family Dollar. Mm-hmm. It's called a Family Dollar. Like that's the big date of Walmart. <laughs> they balance each other out. Dwayne, who goes by Blake, will sometimes rely on Charlene to fill in the gaps in his memories. Who's 91 or something? Yeah. See, that's why I get blurry at now. You got this much you got in the being there. But he's still a lover of tradition. And as a Georgia native, Blake never fails to shower classic Southern affection on Charlene, who grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But the thing about him is, is he's still a gentleman. He'll still hold the door for me. He gets mad if I go for the door first. He'll get so mad. For some of you listening, Charlene and Blake might sound like your parents or your aunt and uncle or your friends. And in many ways, they are. But the path they took to get to this point is pretty unique. Ivy, can you explain? Sure. So while Charlene and Blake now live a very traditional life, Charlene met her now husband for the first time while he was in a Massachusetts state prison. He was serving a life sentence for second-degree murder. From the other side of the wall, Charlene dated him through prison, got engaged to him in prison, and married him in prison, waiting patiently for the day that he might come home. Ivy first approached me a few months ago with Charlene and Blake's story, and the stories of other couples who had built romantic lives despite one partner being incarcerated. And not for small things, either— These are all men who were sentenced to life in prison for murder. 
By contrast, the women in these stories have only known life outside of prison. They've only known freedom. Ivy's going to tell Charlena Blake's story today. It's the first episode in a three-part series we're calling We Found Love, where Ivy will explore how romantic love and partnership run up against and sometimes transcend the justice system. I'm excited to share this with you. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. And I'm Ivy Scott. Telling these stories, three couples, three types of relationships, felt essential as soon as I first heard them. One day in the summer of 2022, a woman reached out to me to share some of the advocacy work her boyfriend had been doing. He would love to tell me more about it himself, she said, but he was in prison and wanted to know if I could email him to talk more about criminal justice reform. I said, sure, curious to hear about this man's experience. And I'll confess, I stereotyped them. My best guess was that the pair shared a child together, or at least that they'd met well before he went to jail. But I honestly didn't think much about it until, over the phone, the woman mentioned that her boyfriend had been in prison for years before they met. The two had been matched together randomly as part of a prison pen pal program. Immediately, I had questions. How do you date in a prison? Can you really get to know someone under the watchful eye of a correctional officer or the glare of a security camera? And perhaps most callously. Why on earth would you pick someone trapped behind a wall of barbed wire to fall in love with when Hinge and Bumble would suggest that there are plenty of perfectly good guys out here? For months, many of my questions went unanswered because the couple broke up not long after we met. But then, one morning in March of 2023, I met Charlene at a prison education event. She shared only a piece of her story, but the flood of questions came rushing back. We swapped business cards and met for coffee. There were plenty of things I already knew about prisons, things that could perhaps offer clues as to what kind of love is even possible there. I knew incarceration separated families, that children whose parents were incarcerated are statistically five to six times more likely to end up in prison themselves. I knew prison was sometimes necessary for certain scary people, serial killers or child molesters. I knew oftentimes it was not so necessary, and I knew that sometimes mistakes were made or evidence was ignored and the wrong person ended up in jail. I knew that many of the men I met, who were currently or had once been in prison, were not at all the monsters they were made out to be. But the world's most eligible bachelors? I wasn't sure about that either. Charlene and Blake are, in a way, the perfect couple to tell this story, because they've been through every high and low, to hell and back, and survived. So we begin with their story and work backwards. In the next episodes, you'll hear from a couple who's engaged, and then a couple who started dating not too long ago. As we go on, the stories will get a little messier, a little closer to the raw uncertainty and unflagging hope that mark the most tumultuous parts of life. Charlene and Blake are no strangers to uncertainty themselves. And I believe their story can teach us all something about loving through thick and thin, through the very good times and the very, very bad. So 
Let's go back to the beginning and see what this couple has to show us about what it takes to find love in a hopeless place. Like many great love stories, Charlene and Blake's begins with a setup. It was her girlfriend, and her girlfriend was coming to see my my roomie. I had this other girl coming to visit me, and her girlfriend was like, I hate to see you brothers always with these white girls. I got a nice Nubian sister you need to meet, you know. And I thought, I thought she was just joking. I was going to bring her up. I'm, I like to meet her. The year is 1991. Charlene's best friend approaches her and says, I have this guy I want you to meet. He's nice. He likes basketball, too. I think you guys would really hit it off. Her friend shows Charlene a photo, one where Blake is sporting that high-top fade they still joke about. Charlene looks past the hair and the fact that he's in prison and agrees to go meet him. But why even entertain the idea? She's definitely skeptical, but she trusts her friend, even with an idea as crazy as this one. And for reasons we'll learn more about later, it feels important to keep an open mind. At the time, Blake is 31, Charlene is 27. The visit is different than you might expect. There's no heavy shuffling of shackled ankles as he enters the room or muffled conversation through a plexiglass divider. This is Shirley, once a minimum security prison in North Central Massachusetts. And in the 90s, it looks much more college campus than penitentiary. Lots of buildings on a lot of land. Inmates live in cottages, complete with a kitchen and living room. The property has walking trails, basketball courts, and even fields with horses. Charlene ends up coming on a day that Blake and his roommates have a dinner planned. I walk in and, you know, I see him waiting. And so from a distance, I felt the attraction because he was tall, he was, you know, he was dark. And then, I, you know, I got closer and I, you know, he had a friendly smile. So that was a capture, just his greeting. His eyes are bright looking at me. So the, the tension of all that was, was intriguing. Like, you know, this guy's really looking to see me. Charlene makes an impression on him, too. I remember when we first met, we were talking and the food was ready. And she was like, oh, we'll catch up later. The food is ready. She stopped me. I'm, you know, I'm trying to rap to her. You know. She's like, oh, I'll talk to you in a minute. Give me the hand. You know. I remember that much. At the end of the visit, he was like, give me some sugar. And I was like, sugar? Let's talk about sugar. And then, you know, that's what really, I think, captured my, my attention and, and, you know, and so I said, well, I'll come back and visit again. And he was like, again? You'll come again? And I was like, yeah, I'll come back and see you again. And she does go back. Again and again and again. So I, we'd have breakfast together. We'd take a walk. We'd go back and figure out lunch. We'd take a walk. You know, we'd figure out dinner before I left. Something quick. What are we going to do tomorrow? It's Sunday. And it was a house setting. So there was no bars. There was no guards. And so it was sort of like... I don't know, practice of like how we would interact and figure out meals and figure out family time. And so we just built our own, you know, routine. As this unexpected love story begins to unfold, Charlene does her best to stay grounded. For his part, Blake tries to be upfront and honest about why he's in prison. I told her, you know, straight up what I was in for, you know, I didn't sugar-coated a mask in any form or fashion. So 10 years earlier, in the winter of 1981, a 21-year-old Blake is living in Savannah, Georgia, and decides to take a trip up to Boston with a friend who grew up there before moving down south. One night out in the big city, Blake and his friend are with another guy 
when they bump into a man on the bus that the guy recognizes. A man who Blake will later learn is Alton Whitaker, 22 years old. It's clear there's some beef. According to Blake, Whitaker tried to jump the guys the week prior, on a night when Blake had decided to stay in. Now, his friends want revenge. And so they and Blake follow Whitaker off the bus. According to police, what the guys are really after is Whitaker's cassette player, a motive that Blake finds unconvincing. In either case, words are exchanged. Whitaker pulls out a knife. Blake's friend pulls out a gun. And before Blake can blink, Whitaker is lying on the pavement, dying of a gunshot wound to the chest. Blake and his friends run, and Blake spends the next few days wondering if he'll be implicated in the shooting. And sure enough, on his last night in Boston, as his greyhound back to Savannah is pulling away from the bus stop, he's stopped and arrested by Boston police. His friends are already in custody. Less than a year later, Blake is convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Learning all this shakes Charlene, who takes her time processing everything Blake has to tell her. But ultimately, she decides that the Blake she knows, who walks her around the prison grounds and talks with her for hours, who thinks hard about life's big questions, and who reckons honestly with the consequences of his actions, that is a changed man from the 21-year-old who was sentenced a decade ago. Plus, Charlene is enamored. The length of Blake's sentence doesn't loom nearly as large as her visions of a shared future. He had told me he had just done, what, 10 years. I was like, oh my God, you just did 10 years? And he's a strong, articulate, healthy, handsome young man. And I'm like, I was amazed. And I thought that was heroic, that he was surviving that. And besides, she knows she's far from perfect herself. I mean, I was young. I don't even think at that point I had really realized that this was a life sentence, to be honest with you. But as their relationship grows more serious, she begins to weigh the consequences of what this could mean for their family. I was, like, doing all this not really knowing if he was going to actually be released. I mean, my mindset was, like, I might just be a prison wife. I had to mentally be prepared for that. So we just decided, you have scars, I have scars. We revealed our scars, and we decided that we're both going to live knowing what each other's scars were. Charlene and Blake grow closer as these visits continue. She opens up about things that she doesn't usually share, parts of her story that, as we'll learn later, she's worked hard to keep hidden from the world. And then comes the day Charlene lets Blake meet her two-year-old daughter, Charmaine. And how long was it that went by before you met her daughter? Actually, it took a while. She finally brought her up, you know. I didn't want to pressure her that. I figured she'd bring her daughter up when she wanted to bring her up, you know. I had reservations about the child coming up in a prison anyway, you know. The very first time he laid eyes on her, me and her had just came in the visiting room. We were waiting for him to come through another door from his dorm. And she was by the door. We just came playing with the knob. And as soon as he came to the door, she was at the knob. First thing he said to her was, get away from that knob, like jokingly. And she startled her and she looked. And that's when the first time I remember that they made eye contact was him fussing at her. He was the first experience I had of a man really being father to my daughter, even in that small setting, even in those small segments of time. What are your favorite things about Charlene? 
She was easy to talk to, and we just talked, and one thing led to another, and then before I know it, I had emotions. Then when I met her daughter, and I know she was a single mother, I probably wouldn't have married her if she didn't have a daughter. I don't know. I, I think her, the, her, her daughter just needing a father and me needing a daughter, you know, that just helped me love them all, you know, the package. You know, it sounds kind of corny, but we were sitting at a table having dinner, and he was at the head of the table, and just the way he was sitting at the head of the table and he held his hands the way my father held his hands. And that was, I don't know, in that moment, I saw him as like the head of, of my table, like as my husband. The three quickly begin to feel like a family. Charlene and Blake decide they're more than just boyfriend and girlfriend. They should be husband and wife. But while Charlene is convinced that Blake is the one for her, her family still has reservations. Didn't look pretty in the beginning. When you go home, you tell someone you're marrying a guy that's got a life sentence. You must be out of your mind, right? You must be. <laughs> you gotta be, right? Everyone knew the situation. Everyone didn't agree with it. But we just bonded and we decided that that's what worked for us. And we just stood together and just decided that this is what, we, this is what it is. And this is what we're going to do. Cue the family interrogation. Enter Charlene's sister. I mean, I wasn't intimidated or scared enough, but when you come to seeing somebody that's coming to see you, you know, incarcerated, and she's a school teacher, how dare he, you know, my niece might be in danger with this man. Yeah, but it's all good. Yeah. It was an experience, you know. You expect that, so you just look at the humor side of it and carry on. But ultimately, Charlene's family is able to see what she sees in Blake. And so... With their blessing, she goes into serious wedding planning mode. I went and grabbed two wedding bands. I think I bought him some shorts and a white shirt, and I had like a pinstripe suit on. So I picked out the outfits, and I gathered my girlfriends, and we came up with a menu, and we cooked pans and pots of southern food, like fried chicken wing ads and macaroni and cheese, potato salad, collard greens, sweet potatoes, cornbread, everything. We just laid it out in big pans and caravaned it up to the prison. Yeah, just came up there, all I remember, you know. They came up there in a rental car with stuff hanging from it, you know. I couldn't go nowhere in the car, of course. We had to got married in the church up there, you know. In the chapel? In the chapel, so nice, you know. And what Charmaine do during the chapel? Uh, cried out, I want my mommy. Get out my mommy. Yeah. <laughs> we exchanging vows. She runs yeah. up, get out my mommy. <laughs> so she cried, but it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. As it could be in the situation. And we just uh, had the reception and enjoyed our time together. And then uh, at six o'clock, you said goodbye, and I said goodbye. <laughs> you got in your car and left. And I went upstairs to my bunk beds. For about a year after the wedding, they're a happy family of three. Charlene and Charmaine visit weekly. They settle into a rhythm, grow their foundation. And then one day, rather unexpectedly, they learn that their trio is becoming a quartet. Charlene is pregnant. I mean, things happen, but, you know, I didn't expect it to happen, like, while I was still incarcerated. But it happened, and I just had to trust God. She took care of her first daughter that she had taken care of him, too. So, you're probably wondering how all this happened. 
Well, I was too. That was one of the questions they asked him on the pro hearing about how that all happened. I was like, really? Are you going to ask me that question? How did it happen? <laughs> tell him what you told him. The two eggs meet instead of explaining like that. <laughs> That's what he told him. Swim toward the uterus. <laughs> That's what he told him. And I just said, okay, okay, we got it. <laughs> went to the next question. <laughs> the parole board didn't get all the details. What Charlene and Blake really did was sneak off for a little alone time during one of their visits, with the help of a friendly security guard. The first trimester isn't too bad. But as months pass, people begin asking the inevitable questions. And while Charlene has a small circle she can open up to, her parents, cousins, and of course, the friend who set her up with Blake in the first place, she's afraid others will judge her if they know the whole story. It feels easier to cover up the relationship. Until the baby bump, anyway. My friends are like, okay, you're married. And now you're pregnant. We haven't seen the husband yet. Where does baby come from? You know what I mean? You know how many stories and lies, outright lies, I had to tell for years. But not only that, I suffered in silence. Because who do you tell that to? But Blake is a steady presence the whole time, just as he promised to be. He took care of me my whole pregnancy. Only thing I didn't do was sleep there. A few days before Valentine's Day 1993, Charlene goes into labor. Blake's sentence prevents him from being there in person. But that doesn't stop Charlene from finding a way to share the special moment. The Sunday after she gives birth to a baby boy they named Denzel, she calls into a radio station that broadcasts regularly in the prison. She knows her husband will be listening. He was born on the 12th. Mm. And I and I shouted out to him, and P-Funk, out and Shirley, we got a son. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And he heard it. So that's mm. how he knew. Less than a month after bringing Denzel home, Charlene is back at the prison, this time with two little ones in tow. Blake holds his son for the first time, and everything feels just right. The pair still sets aside time for date night, which basically means walking the prison grounds before dinner, hand in hand. Sit on the back end and watch over the horizon as they build a new maximum prison. And I was thinking to myself, I'm definitely not coming back here. Throughout my whole incarceration, you know, I was expecting to, when I get released from here, I was going to go back to Georgia, you know, till I met her. Their story continues after this quick break. When I first met Charlene and Blake, I thought their story was a bit of a unicorn. But I realized not too long after that this was my own naivete. Well, I wouldn't quite call it common. Lots of women fall in love with guys in prison they didn't know before. And I'm sure there are more than a few guys who have fallen in love with incarcerated women, too. Just as with more conventional love stories, these relationships don't always last. Couples fight, trust is broken, someone cheats, people break up. But unlike conventional love stories, the fears of what could go wrong can be magnified if there's any chance that one day the person could be released from prison and come home. As exciting as it is to dream of a life together on the outside, that life brings a fresh set of uncertainties. Prison, quite literally, keeps your relationship safe in a little box. Charlene and Blake told me stories of other couples they knew, 
men who swore they were in it for the long haul, and then, a week after being released, skipped town with all their girlfriend's money. Or women who promised they would die for their partner, only to leave upon realizing he wasn't exactly the man she thought he'd be. Love's hardest tests, then, were still to come. Before we turn to the next chapter of our story, I want to take a step back and tell you some more about our main characters. We've learned a lot about Blake, the boyfriend, the convict, the husband, and about Charlene, the girlfriend, the fiancé, the mother. But who is Blake, the man, and Charlene, the woman? If you haven't guessed it yet, Blake is a pretty easygoing guy, an old-school Southern gentleman content with life's simple pleasures. A drink after work, a hug from his kids. He never really had any big plans for his future when he was young, always figured he'd find a job that paid decent money somewhere not too far from his folks, and eventually settle down. By comparison, Charlene was a firecracker. She grew up tall and strong in New England, first a high school basketball star on a legendary team that won multiple state championships, and later, a high school coach in Cambridge. At 26, she had a daughter with a man she doesn't talk much about, but who she describes as the opposite of Blake. She was doing administrative work full-time at a local university while raising her daughter and coaching when she met Blake. But for years, Charlene has been shouldering a secret. She does her best to keep it from her coworkers and students, but she can never fully hide it from her family. This is the height of the 90s crack epidemic, and Charlene is addicted. I was like a closet drug addict, so I still had like a full schedule, full life. And then getting up there to see him, I'm juggling all this. Before she knew it, she realized she couldn't stop, even when she wanted to. Somehow, she's able to keep up appearances as a successful working woman, pushing the cravings into the back of her mind until the dishes are washed and the kids are in bed. But on the inside, she feels broken and desperate for help. Addiction is a monkey on your back. It's, it's not something you choose to do. You're caught up in it. So I spent a lot of time with him. That's why I was there. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Because when I went back to the real world, it was the addiction was waiting for me. That was another piece of why I wanted to marry him, because I felt safe when I was with him. And I thought when he came home that I would be able to stop the drug addiction. And, you know, he would be there to, to be not only inspiration of that, but to support me in that. In 1997, Charlene's dream comes true. Blake gets paroled. After serving 16 years in prison, he's finally coming home. Like, unbelievable. You know, I remember her coming to pick me up in the car with the kids in the car. Denzel was in school. Was just oh, yeah, yeah, Denzel was in school. I remember he was telling his friends, my father's here, my father's home. I remember him telling the kids in his class. Just like Blake had been upfront about his case, Charlene had been clear with him from the beginning about her struggles with addiction. But no matter how much they talk, no matter how much time they spend together, it's impossible for Blake to know how bad things really are until he can see for himself. What Blake comes home to is worse than he expects. But looking back now, he almost glosses over some of the hardest parts. And then, of course, I was, like, worried. Is she getting high? But I just had to, I can't worry about that, you know what I'm saying? Because I knew there's nothing I could do anyway, you know. I seen it firsthand. I seen what it did to how it changed prison, how crack came along and changed the whole dynamics of prison to this day. But that's another story. But 
GTC may have a hold on it. Charlene, on the other hand, spares no details and speaks candidly about how Blake pretty much forced her to get clean. Yeah, I've threatened to leave. Right. You know, but, <laughs> yeah, I did. That's yeah. why I got clean, so you might as well say because that's what motivated yeah. me. Yeah, I was going to take the babies and just do one of them. Didn't have Amber Alerts then, so they probably wouldn't have found me. I was just going to make a mad dash with the two babies to my mother's, to Georgia. The threat ends up being exactly what Charlene needs. Blake, just like she'd always hoped, ends up being exactly who she needs. And then it, it hit me. And I called the NA hotline. And then it's just been a narcotic anonymous saved my life. He supported me then. You know, I couldn't go to meetings all the time. I had to play tapes in the house. I had to get my medicine at home sometimes and play stuff that he didn't want to hear, the kids didn't want to hear. But I needed to hear it because this is what I was doing to stop using drugs. Rather than being torn apart, the two stay bound together, tied by the strength and grace they've shown one another again and again over the years. It was a swap. Like, I had tolerated a lot. And he came home to a lot. And I guess that's the way he saw it. Like, what do I, look what I just brought her through. Why would I abandon her now? I don't know. I don't want to speak for him, but that's, those were his actions. Did you feel that way? Yeah. Most definitely. She saw me at my worst, you know. So, she, like I said, she did what she had to do. She came through. He could have came home and been like, forget her, I'm leaving with my son, she's a crackhead, and just leave. He could have did that. He didn't do that. He tolerated. We were really close to eviction, really close to recovery possession when he walked home. When he walked out of that prison, that's what he was walking into. And he stayed. Slowly but surely, Charlene and Blake learned to walk through everyday life together outside the prison walls. Blake supports Charlene through her recovery. Charlene helps Blake find work. Blake gets used to the routine of fatherhood. Charlene grows more comfortable sharing her space. I had to relieve some of my power to him and let him be the lead. And that was a struggle in and of itself. There are plenty of highs, like family games of two-on-two basketball, and definite lows, like the times Charlene threatens divorce if Blake doesn't quit drinking after work and pull his weight around the house. But the couple overcomes every obstacle life throws their way. Each time one partner falters, The other one is there to lift them up. What makes Charlene and Blake's story different from the others you'll hear in this series is that, in a way, we already know the ending. Blake comes home, and the two have the chance to try and live a normal life together. But one thing I quickly realized as I heard their story is that, even post-release, prison continues to cast its shadow over Blake's life— creating new challenges for their relationship. From the day he first tasted freedom, Blake was determined not to squander it, not to make the same mistakes he had when he was 21. But adjusting to life on the outside for someone who's been in prison for years is anything but easy. There would be bumps in the road, stumbling blocks, and parole violations for little things, like having a beer, which the parole board can prohibit as a condition of an inmate's release. Over the years, he's grown accustomed to the do's and don'ts and hasn't had a parole violation in over a decade. But there are still traces of the system in their day-to-day, like a stain that won't come out no matter how many times you wash it. When's enough going to be enough? I mean, how long should I have to be on parole before they say, okay, you did something in your 20s, now you're in your 60s, and you're still on parole? It's always been like that, waiting for the other shoe to drop or... You know, waiting for them to 
implement some new stipulation or threaten him with something or so that's the pressure we learned I guess to live under we made some mistakes we've fallen off track but we've always come back revamped reevaluated and just readjusted you know and have never thrown in the towel and the thing they're most proud of the example they've set for their children. You always told my son, getting into trouble is easy, getting out of it's hot. That's always been his advice. How many African-American homes do you know that the father is a lifer, serving a life, natural life sentence? You got a mother that's coming out of drug addiction, and so here you are being raised in, in such a pressure, and you still, you know, you have a father that stands his course does what he's supposed to do, because from the beginning he said he wanted to take care of his family, raise his family, be there for his family. He's done everything that he's supposed to do for this family. And that is what the example he has left for his son, who's now 30, with no interactions with the Department of Justice. No drugs, no gang involvement, no nothing. We just decided that we were going to do what we felt was right, despite how other people felt or saw about it. So, and we made the right choice, I think, right? I wish I could end their story here, with a cliched and they lived happily ever after. But the couple has recently found themselves in another fight. This one for Blake's life. In June, Blake, who is now 64, was diagnosed with cancer. And while they've had some promising results since then, a successful surgery, the start to chemo, they know a long battle lies ahead. Once you get a scare, somebody tell you you got cancer. That changes everything. But they won't abandon hope, because Blake and Charlene know they have what it takes to pull through, just like they've done their entire 32 years together. We're used to putting on gloves and battling in situations where we got to fight. So this is just another fight. That's the way I look at it. The O had always said from the first time we decided to date, We're going to ride this car till the wheels fall off. And even then, we're going to get out and push. And right now, we're at the get out and push. As I listened to Blake and Charlene's story, I was struck by how the wisdom they've collected over the years has not only helped them, but could also be pretty helpful to me. While I currently don't have any plans to fall in love with someone serving a life sentence, there's something resonant about how distance can strengthen love. I find myself returning to this as I consider my own long-distance relationship. And as someone of marrying age who is often wondering about what it'll be like, what parts will go well and which ones won't, I also took notes on how two people can put in the work to make love last, even when life throws up its thickest walls. Yeah, I could learn from that. There are going to be times, for better or for worse, and sickness, and in health. And those are real issues, and those could be long-lasting, they could be short, and you don't know. So the thing I'm trying to say about that is really look at what you're signing up for, for the vows, you know what I mean? Not just something that sounds pretty at the wedding and it's gonna match the lyrics of a song, but something that you're really gonna live by and understand what that really means. People ask me the question, okay, have a wife and kids. But if I can go back and change the events of that night 
where I don't get incarcerated for 17 years of my life. Would I change that? I couldn't. I'd have to do the time again. I'd have to go through the process of meeting her other than just coming up here, doing, looking at Boston like I thought I'd go back home. I'd do the time again. Yes. I would do the time again <laughs> to meet her. You might be wondering what other couples have had experiences like this, and what do experts say about having healthy relationships in and outside of prison? Over two more episodes coming out over the next two weeks, Love Letters will explore these questions. Join us for the next installment of this special series, We Found Love. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was reported by Ivy Scott and produced by Jesse Remedios. It was edited by Scott Hellman with help from Chris Hooks. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Maddie Mortel does our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ali Riza. Our marketing coordinator is Maggie Taylor. Special thanks to Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. We're online at loveletters.show. Okay, it's been one year, two years, they still got three years. <laughs> right. Five years, they still hanging in there. <laughs> Did he leave her yet? No, sir. <laughs> I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening.